This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for June 22nd, 2022. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, this past week, the FDA approved and then the CDC recommended the use of vaccines in young children. This means that many parents may choose to vaccinate children who haven't had the option before. But the risk of severe disease seems to decrease with age, which changes the risk-benefit calculation. How then should physicians think about counseling families with young children? Well, Steve, there are certainly hospitalizations and even deaths in the age group that's now eligible for vaccines. But as you say, they're relatively unusual. There are other complications of disease, such as MISC, a syndrome which is associated with considerable morbidity. Although the studies that were performed for the authorization were too small to see any cases of severe disease, by extrapolation from other age groups, it's very likely that vaccines will be effective. It's a little harder to draw any conclusions about MISC, though to the extent that vaccines prevent infection, there should be benefits as well. But how well does vaccination prevent infection in this group? It's important to remember that the trials that the FDA looked at were immunobridging studies. The vaccines elicited similar levels of neutralizing antibodies in young children as in older age groups. Although there were some infections, it's hard to draw firm conclusions as the numbers were small and the studies were largely conducted in the pre-Omicron era. Nevertheless, everything seems consistent with what we've learned in older age groups. With the appearance of Omicron and related viral variants, vaccination is likely to have only a modest effect on infection while retaining its ability to prevent severe disease. And as for risks, again, the numbers were small, but no real concerns arose in the authorization studies. So what do we do with this information? In very unscientific polling, I've asked around among some of my infectious disease colleagues with young children to see what they plan to do. And pretty much all of them plan to get their children vaccinated. It's clear, though, that there will be a range of opinions. So, Eric, I think you raise important issues that we as a community are discussing. How do we extend the benefits of vaccination to other important groups, such as the youngest among us? And using immunobridging makes a whole lot of scientific sense. And over the last two years, we've been able to develop the science to understand which aspects of the immune response are important in controlling infection, preventing infection, and are associated with less severe infection and illness. So it's not unreasonable to use immunobridging, seeing what is the strength of the antibody response elicited by vaccination in different groups, such as children and even very little children, to infer the likelihood of protection. And it is terrific to see scientific discussion about this at all levels and to better define how we understand what protection likely means. So I find these data encouraging and quite supportive of logically extending vaccination to little kids. What is likely true is that the protection against mild disease is probably less robust than the protection against more severe illness. The challenge is the number of individuals you need to study to rigorously define that. Hence, the use of this surrogate or intermediate marker to allow us to understand the elicitation of protection and therefore the likely potential benefits to the kids. This week, we published a study on a different vulnerable group, pregnant women and their newborn children. We've published surveillance data that suggests that women who receive vaccine while pregnant 
aren't at a detectably increased risk of pregnancy complications. And it's clear that women who become infected while pregnant can have serious complications. So they can clearly benefit from vaccination. But what about their children? It's important to remember that the current COVID vaccines are authorized for children only above the age of six months. We don't currently have a vaccine for younger infants. In fact, we don't administer many vaccines to this age group as their immature immune systems won't necessarily mount substantial immune responses or develop strong memory responses. For many infections, we rely on the transfer of maternal antibodies to protect neonates. That's the basis for this study, in which the investigators attempted to determine the magnitude of protection provided by maternal antibody. So, Eric, I think that pregnancy is a unique setting where we're able to better understand what types of immunity can afford protection. For example, with H flu, tetanus, influenza, there are a series of studies that demonstrate vaccinating mom during pregnancy, particularly later in pregnancy, protects the neonate during the first few months of life when the immune system is particularly immature and figuring out how to adapt to the outside world. And these studies have demonstrated substantial protection. In fact, neonatal tetanus is a condition that has been substantially curtailed and even eradicated in communities where maternal vaccination is deployed. And I think this is important because it demonstrates the role of antibody, particularly IgG, in protection. We have discussed previously the complexity of the immune response elicited by vaccination, the innate immune response, the adaptive immune response, T-cell immunity, our scientific limitations in being able to assess these different parts of the immune system. In the setting of late pregnancy, mom is able to give baby lots of IgG, and that IgG can protect baby from all sorts of infections in the first few months of life while the neonatal immune system is maturing. So I see this as an important setting to really understand adoptive transfer and how mom can further protect baby through immunologic transfer developed through millennia of evolution, given that vulnerable time period during the first few months of life. I also do want to highlight another kind of vaccine and protection that we use, and that's hepatitis B. We do actually immunize babies at day zero. In the context where we know mom may be a chronically infected with hepatitis B, as both vaccination and hepatitis B immune globulin, when given at that moment of delivery, can afford protection so that the infant doesn't contract hepatitis B. So there are a variety of settings where we have developed interventions that can be particularly beneficial during vulnerable moments especially around late pregnancy and the early few months of neonatal life that can prevent infection with some very serious viruses. You bring up an interesting point, Lindsay. The only kind of protection that's transferred from the mother is antibody. And in some ways, this is almost like the case where people are treated with immune sera in order to afford protection. This is exactly that case. There is no cell-mediated immunity transferred in these infants. And so, therefore, this is a pure antibody response, and it's the antibody response that the mom made. In fact, it's actually only a subset of the antibodies that mom makes. And yet, as you point out, in many cases, most dramatically in neonatal tetanus, this is highly effective. It may be less effective for many sorts of illnesses where cell-mediated immunity 
plays a critical part in protection. But clearly for COVID-19, antibody is sufficient, even if it's not all of the story. And I think that's an important point, Eric. A lot of our immunity is redundant. So it's not as if there's a single immunologic parameter per pathogen that we rely on. We rely on a mixed immune response. Otherwise, the bugs would outsmart us. And I think in this setting, as you note, and I do want to emphasize, particularly for respiratory viruses like influenza and SARS-CoV-2, high titer antibody response in and of itself affords a fair amount of protection. In addition, other arms of the immune system provide other layers of protection and protection through time. But the issue of the IgG and the ability of the placenta to enhance it in the fetus is really important to afford protection during those first days and weeks after birth. And it's been shown for influenza and data continue to grow for other viruses like SARS-CoV-2. So getting back to the study we published, how did it work and what were the results? The study was very similar to other real-world effectiveness studies we published in that it was a case-controlled test-negative design. The investigators looked at infants who are hospitalized for COVID-19 or for other reasons, and they compared them to determine how many were born of mothers who were vaccinated during pregnancy. The study was performed in 30 hospitals across 22 states, and it ended up enrolling more than 500 case infants and a similar number of control infants. The investigators determined how many were born of mothers who received two doses of vaccine during pregnancy and used that to determine the protective effectiveness. Importantly, they excluded women who had received vaccine prior to pregnancy and those who'd received only a single dose of vaccine. So this was a pretty select group. About two-thirds of the cases were collected during the period when Omicron was a dominant variant. Overall, vaccination of mothers was about 50% effective against preventing hospitalization with the best efficacy during the period when Delta was a dominant variant. In addition, children of mothers who were vaccinated later in pregnancy were more highly protected than those vaccinated before 20 weeks of gestation. Children with COVID were quite ill in this study, with almost a quarter of them requiring ICU admission. Infants born of mothers who received vaccine were less likely to develop this severe disease requiring the ICU. None of the two infants who required ECMO and the two who died were born of vaccinated mothers. So altogether, this is another group which benefits from vaccination. Vaccination prior to pregnancy might also benefit newborns, but we can't determine that from these data. So Eric, the data from this study are consistent with what we were just discussing. That passive transfer of antibody is likely protective. Later in pregnancy, the titers are often higher and therefore logically, more is likely to be transferred to baby and therefore be more protective, and that it's likely to be more effective against severe illness. It is difficult to demonstrate the protection against severe illness given the rarity of that event, but the findings here are all consistent with our understanding of the biology. So I find these data as more evidence that vaccination later in pregnancy affords benefit in the early postpartum period for the neonate. So given these data, how would you recommend that physicians counsel pregnant women? So Steve, this is always a very tricky question. So we need to look at the overall evidence. What's the risk-benefit ratio? And what is that ratio in the context 
of likely exposure to the pathogen. What I mean by that is in the context of widespread transmission of a virus that is known to cause severe illness in pregnancy, in those who are immunocompromised, in children, I think we need to think carefully about how we manage the risk of the unknown versus the benefit of the known as we continue to learn more about that benefit. So here, weighing the severity of illness that can occur, albeit rare, but not that rare, as many of us know of cases of quite severe illness in little ones that have had severe morbidity versus the unknown risks to mom, where the data continue to grow, where we don't see significant side effects, nor are there conceptually side effects that we're worried about. So I think currently with SARS-CoV-2 spreading wildly in our communities, the risk-benefit ratio, given the state of the data today, strongly favor vaccination, given how much illness COVID does and has caused in children. Lindsay, I'd add that there does appear to be an increased risk of disease severity in pregnant women themselves. So these vaccines are doing double duty. They're protecting the newborn, but they're also protecting mom during pregnancy. So I think that the risk-benefit ratio here is quite favorable and that pregnant women should be vaccinated. Of course, I think everyone should be vaccinated so that many women will receive vaccine before their pregnancy. And chances are that their newborns will also benefit from that. And I think, Eric, the additional consideration here, as we talked earlier about the biology of protection in the neonate, vaccination during pregnancy or later in pregnancy is likely to lead to higher titers, which is likely to lead to higher antibody transfer. And this is often a debate in the OB community about how to think about boosting vaccination, such as for pertussis, for influenza, for other pathogens that cause severe neonatal illness. How do we think about boosting mom so that this protective element is at a high enough titer to enable meaningful protection in the neonate? So there's a timing issue here that the community will have to debate a bit more, but the biology suggests that high titer third trimester likely leads to the best protection of the neonate. So as you've said, we tend to think of COVID-19 as being a relatively mild disease in children, but clearly that's not the case in this group who, once they were hospitalized, they were at a relatively high risk of ICU admission. Why is that? Well, first, let's look at the data. If you look at the CDC's compilation of deaths due to COVID-19, there weren't that many in the age group of under one years old. There are only about 300 as of last week. But to give that some context, that's about 10 times higher than the number of deaths due to influenza in this group. So it does appear that these young children are at fairly high risk of severe disease. Why should that be? Well, we've already talked about the immature immune system of these kids. They are less able to fight off by themselves many sorts of infections and are susceptible to diseases that older children really rarely get or rarely get with any severity. At the same time, their lungs are immature and they're still developing. And so pneumonia is a common sort of sequela of viral infections among these kids. And finally, there are a decent number of children who are born 
premature or with other issues, which increase their susceptibility to infection and their susceptibility to severe infection. So this is a group that we really do want to try to protect. And Eric, I want to keep coming back to the severity of respiratory illness in the neonate. And I think over the last hundred years, with vaccine development, with public health improvement, we don't think about the severity of measles, influenza, pneumococcus, pertussis, many of which vaccines have made an important dent in their morbidity to the point where they're oddities in the developed world when we see cases in the little ones. But these are quite severe infections that used to be leading causes of morbidity and mortality. And so I think we should be appreciative of the health benefits that have been developed and not lose sight of how to develop new health benefits for this very vulnerable community. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.